You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. My name is Sandhya Bahuja and I'm a Professor of International Law at the Melbourne Law School. I'm joined by Dr. Louisa Slava, Reader in International Law at Kent Law School, and we're very lucky to be able to interview today Professor Michael Fakhri, who's the author of Sugar and the Making of International Trade, and the co-editor with Louisa Slava and Vasuki Nasir of Bandung Global History and International Law. Professor Fakhri is from the School of Law at the University of Oregon, and he is the incoming UN Special Rapporteur on the right to food, and he's about to take up that role on the 1st of May. So we're really grateful that Michael has agreed to be interviewed today. Thank you very much, Michael, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Son and Luis, and thank you for having me. So, Michael, let's start with the role. Um, we're hoping that the main audience for this video is going to be our students. And so would you tell us a little bit about what a UN Special Rapporteur is and what they do? So a UN Special Rapporteur, uh, first they're picked, they're uh, nominated and picked by the United Nations Human Rights Council. So you go through a process where the first step is you apply, you go online and you apply, and then you go through, uh, if you're lucky, you get interviewed. And then from that, uh, different national representatives debate amongst each other, and then you get selected. And then the idea is the special rapporteurs, and there's a wide range. The number is scarcely, but I think it's over 40 these days. And you're, you're the eyes and ears for the Human Rights Council, and really for the UN writ large. And uh, you're the eyes and ears for the UN on human rights issues. So um, you're not representing the United Nations, and you're not representing any particular stakeholder or group or country. You're independent. Mm -hmm. um, these positions are voluntary. What you're given is a, a relatively small amount of resources, um, and, and you're an independent voice on the particular mandate that you have, and in my case, that's the right to food. Fantastic. And are, they, are special rapporteurs usually professors? They often are. Uh, the percentage I saw was maybe 60 to 70% are, are professors, academics. The, uh, and then the, the second group tend to be from the NGO world. Mm. And then the small number, you might have some lawyers in private practice or practitioners or professionals, people working in the private sector. That's a smaller number. It's predominantly academics, I think, is we have the flexibility in time. So this is a very time, uh, demands a lot of time. And um, different academics from different institutions can then leverage their position and their institutional resources to support this mandate and, and to also coordinate different resources. Great. And tell us, um, in particular, the special rapporteur on the right to food, what's your mandate meant to be? So there's a formal mandate, and it's quite long, actually, it's several pages. So if you want to go and read it, and it covers almost anything and everything. And what caught my attention, for example, is included in the my mandate, formally speaking, is a focus on uh, international economic aspects. So the focus on the World Bank, the IMF, and the WTO is written into my mandate. Um, so coming from my trade and development background, that, that sort of uh, caught my eye. Uh, the other way the mandate can be defined is through doctrinal ways of what is the right to food and, and how it's interpreted and how we can interpret it. But of course, like a good clever lawyer, 
you always push the definition. Um, so you, you, can, you can do that. And then there's the choice of the, the rapporteur themselves. They get to choose what to focus on, how to focus. So one's own idiosyncrasies and preferences and friendships and relationships and background really influence. I'm the fourth special rapporteur on the right to food. Um, and so before me was Jean Ziegler uh, from Switzerland. And after that was Olivier de Schuter from Belgium. Uh, uh, the outgoing one is Hilal uh, Eslever from Turkey and now myself. So mm -hmm. I've also seen how different people do it in their personalities, how they come through. And um, um, so in, in many ways, there are limitations, but I think uh, one can be very creative and, and ambitious if, if you really go for it. So I, um, in a specific sense, I remember uh, hearing Olivier de Schutter, well, actually not hearing, but reading Olivier de Schutter's address to the World Trade Organization. And I found that extremely um, illuminating about the different ways that Human Rights Council would approach the question of the right to food versus the trading system. So as a practical matter, what will you actually do? Will you go around talking to different institutions or will you write reports or will you conduct inquiries? So one of the most exciting political interventions from the human rights sector that I've seen in recent years was Professor Philip Alston's um, inquiry in, into uh, poverty in Britain. Would you do things like that? Um, so admittedly, I'm still learning as I go. Um, every day I learn a, 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 a huge amount of what I'm able to do. Yeah. Um, and as someone with a ridiculous imagination. I think it's because of my love of science fiction and comic books. Um, I also just have a, a, just a sense of, you know, I can do 30,000 different things, but here's sort of what I understand right now. So in the formal sense, a special rapporteur does three things. They advocate, um, they write thematic reports, and they, they conduct country visits. So I'm going to con conduct two country visits a year, um, and I'm going to write two thematic reports a year. Um, so on the advocacy side, what that means is I'll receive individual petitions from particular groups, from civil society, from social movements, from individuals who have a grievance. And they will write me a letter and it makes its way through the Human Rights Council. And then we, we then, in a sense, triage them. What's an urgent request? What's not so urgent? What's maybe outside of my scope? Or what's maybe not my political priority? And after that, then I decide how to respond. And the most, uh, so usually what you do then is you identify who their claim is against. Often it's a government, but it might be a corporation or some sort of international institutional body. Mm -hmm. And I write a letter. And that letter first starts off as private. And there's a certain time period. If the person I'm writing to doesn't respond within a certain time period, then I'm allowed to go public. Mm -hmm. And what I'm learning is many governments do not like it when you go public. So that's a, almost now what we would call a classic technique in human rights, naming and shaming. And I, I'm generally uncomfortable with the politics of how naming and shaming has been used in the past. So part of what I need to figure out is how do I use that particular tool? When do I name and shame? When do I go public? How do I go public? What cases do I take? So there's that advocate side of things. On to, in terms of the thematic reports, that's my opportunity to push ideas and agendas in, in, in like academics like to do. And Can you give you us an of, example of what a thematic report, what the theme of a thematic report might be? 
Yeah, so previously, for example, I know Olivier de Schutter did one on agroecology. So connecting the right to food to agroecology. My first thematic report is due, I want to say July, um, and it'll be uh, presented. That first one, I think, is to the Human Rights Council, and then I do it. The second one is to the General Assembly in New York. Um, so wow. my first one, I, yeah, so my first one, I think, is going to be on trade. I'm going to start with what I'm comfortable with. It's a short turnaround time, relatively mm -hmm. speaking. And as we're seeing in the pandemic, trade is central to many aspects of what's going on. And food is central to many aspects of what's going on. And I've been thinking about trade since 1998, I want to say, since I was, I'm going to date myself, since I was a law student. Um, and, uh, and so I come to the right to food from a trade perspective, from a global perspective, from a historical perspective. And I want to put that in that report to think First, to, to outline how people have been thinking and talking and then change things and push things. And so what a thematic report does is you have the audience of the world's diplomats and leaders and civil servants, but also people like us, academics and students who look at these reports and read these reports. And NGOs also look at these reports. So you have an ability to influence and change how people think and talk. Mm. So that's another way of, of, of exerting power. And then the third of there are the country visits. So you really, so this is by invitation. And I'm still trying to understand why would a country invite you? And there's, I've sort of collected a host of different reasons of why they might do that. Um, and so Does I have, the I invitation get to have to come from the government? Yes. Or could it come from other parties in the state? So what you do, if you, if you're, if what you, there's different ways you can get invited. The, the invitation has to be formally from the government. Some governments have a standing invitation. So it's an open invitation, so to speak. And different rapporteurs do this differently. I think my technique will be to connect with organizations and movements before in advance and, and connect with already existing campaigns and look at who are the vulnerable communities and what is their already ongoing struggle. These are people's lives and they know what's best for them. And I can present to them options and, and sort of what I'm able to do and contribute and serve them, right? So the idea of a country visit would be to serve them, but also to serve these national governments. They are inviting me. They are forced to give me complete access to the entire country and to everyone uh, that I asked to. So just as being a good guest, one has to understand how hospitality works. And so by being invited by a government, I won't hold back, I'll be honest, but I'll have to look at what they're doing well, because that's a way of sharing ideas with all sorts of people. Look at how people are figuring out both from the ground up and in government and how they can improve. As we know with uh, economic and social rights, these are progressive rights, meaning we're not gonna reach a magical end goal, but people are always supposed to be pushing and doing their best. Um, so different country visits will serve different purposes. It might be to really go hard and press a government really hard. It might be to, uh, to point out where they can improve and to, and to show their limitations. Um, or it might be, uh, um, for example, something I'm thinking about is I think I have to go to one of the Arctic nations. And when I mean nations, including indigenous people, because that's where climate change is happening fastest and most acutely. So I would have to figure out which, where am I going to go to Norway? Am I going to go to Canada? Am I going to go to Finland? And there's a host of reasons. Um, so those are the three main tasks. And, and, and one of the first invitations I got was to speak at the WTO. So the WTO is having a, a summit on agriculture in December, December 2nd and December 3rd. And uh, I was invited to do opening remarks alongside the Director General of the FAO and the Director General of the WTO. 
and the delegate from the United Nations Secretary General on the World Food Summit. So there's going to be a World Food Summit in 2021. These sorts of summits happen every five-ish years or so, five to ten years we have these things. It's currently unclear to me what the agenda is of the World Food Summit, but the WTO is holding this symposium in December to identify what is uh, the trade angle to food and agriculture and hunger and food security. So the WTO now is focusing on food security. It's using the language of sustainable development goals of SDGs. They've asked me to do opening remarks and closing remarks. So I'm a little <laughs> nervous. They're gonna make you work hard. They're making me work hard. And I have to say, I started, I got into trade as an activist. I was yeah. an activist in the late nineties and now I'm doing this. So it, the world is very curious uh, if I'm being invited. Michael, I was wondering if I can ask you a question about that. And, and, and the question is that is about whether there is a global food system or not. And if there is one, what are the main drivers and stakeholders in that system? That's quite the question. Um, so just a matter, since I know that your students uh, are, are watching this, just in terms of the literature that I tend to lean on and draw from, there's this whole literature of, of food regimes, food regime theory. So this is the work of Harriet Friedman and Philip McMichael. They're coming out of international relations and international studies to some degree, and they use that language of regimes. And, um, and it relates to world systems theory, which I also find very influential in my own work. And the way, so that's sort of just the way of background of students are interested in terms of reading up more and then looking at, at, at other places to think about this outside of law or, to, or adjacent to law. The way I think of things, and this is uh, drawing from world system theories is there's multiple worlds. So I, I think about what do we mean by a world? So there's a, uh, there's a, there's a multitude of worlds already existing. Some worlds are bigger than others. And what happens is they all influence each other. So we could talk, for example, of a world market if we talk about global prices. So if we look at like one way of understanding a world is through global prices, but we have to be specific by what do we mean by global prices? Who's buying what? Where are they buying? What are the indices used to, to and, and what, what institutions are affected by those indices? But I think just as a shorthand, one could talk about a global food regime sort of in some sort of singularity because you see, you see lots of trends and patterns. And, if, and, if, if, and even we can, we can even complicate it more about the distinction between global and local. So you can have a very localized market. So I'll use an example I know. So something is very, as local as it gets for me. Uh, so I live in Eugene, Oregon. Today is what, Saturday? And it's pandemic time. So we had our bread delivered. So this is an informal market. A woman through friends of a friend that has this informal business where she makes bread. And usually she would sell it, but in the pandemic, she's delivering. Our decision whether to buy that bread or not, part of it is price. Part of it is we know her. We care about, we, we're in the same circle of friends. There's that. Um, and then there's the price. And price is affected by the global price of wheat. Hmm? Hmm. And what we consider if it's cheap or expensive is measured against that global price. What is the price of bread in the supermarket, for example, which is a also a global price to some degree and, and all of that. And then when we buy it, we think, ah, okay, it's a bit expensive, or as they say in Oregon, spendy. But then, but that's just one 
element of how we are evaluating whether to buy this loaf of bread or not. Again, taste, so there's an aesthetic, there's gastronomical choices, local solidarity, local economies, um, convenience, um, variety. So, so that's an example where that, so I think it's interesting to think about a global market in, in a lot of different ways and be, be flexible with one sense of geography. Now, where it's helpful is just to, to understand, also to understand power, to understand how power is concentrating in the geographies of power. So, so when I teach, for example, my international business transactions course, I tell students, this is a course about trying to understand what the world looks like from the perspective of a transnational company. So the transnational company. <laughs> I should do that course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for more of Sanjay's <laughs> research to come out and sneak it in. Um, so the idea is that the, the, a transnational company is a world unto itself. They, they create worlds. They are a world and they create worlds. And they look and measure and judge and evaluate the world, not just as they see it, but in their evaluation, they are creating it in a particular way. So, so, and then, uh, so from your point of view, when you, um, as I suppose, as an academic that now is becoming, uh, um, adopting an institutional position. So again, so what are the, what, what are the stakeholders out there in that world food system that we should be paying attention to? So you, you already mentioned corporations and who else would you pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, what I love about doing food is it forces us away from abstract concepts like production, distribution, and consumption. And when it's food, you say things like, who makes your food? Who gives you your food? Who do you share your food with? Who do you mm. eat with? How do you eat? And that's, that's how I think about it. So you start with the meal, who made your food? So producers isn't just, for example, peasants and fisher folk and hunters and pastoralists. So drawing on the world of La Via Campesina and the food sovereignty movement. So you have these social movements. Huh? It's not that just the people who are uh, negotiating with nature and are, are in that sort of mm, the most uh, direct place where we, we cultivate nature. Hmm? It's also who's in our kitchen or who's delivering the food or who's, uh, who's at the table. Um, and, and so who makes our food is both in the fields and in the kitchen, right? It's, um, and so, uh, at, I mean, the, it's gonna sound a bit blunt, but everything, everything and everyone. So what I, I use food and agriculture as a way to think about the global economy, the way to think about ethical mm -hmm. relationships, as a way to think about political uh, uh, institutions and power and all of that. And while at the same time, what makes food different than other ways of thinking and evaluating and understanding is it grounds us in, uh, in very specific ecological uh, spaces. Uh, there's no way without thinking in those terms, I think. Um, and it's also, it forces one to speak and think in non-technical terms. Mm -hmm. um, you can talk to almost anyone about it and you can find a way to relate and to connect because it has that, that universality to it. So by being, an by, by being an ecological question, then science and nature is not something out there. Um, uh, science and nature 
and ecology and environment and all of that is in our guts, it's in our kitchen, it's in our relationships, it's outside our door, it's in the city. Mm. Um, so it, it allows us to think in those terms. But that, uh, sorry, can I yeah, uh, please. ask a yeah, question? Yeah. So that um, way of going from the material and the embedded outward into a way of thinking um, is extremely appealing both politically and intellectually. I wanted to ask you how that approach meets the world of concepts. So mm. when we think of someone like or an institution like the WTO versus an institution like the Food and Agriculture Organization versus the Human Rights Institutions versus Via Campesina versus the World Bank. So when we think of those different actors, I imagine that they each understand the problem of hunger in different ways. Mm -hmm. would, would you be able to generalise at all about the different ways that the problem of hunger in the world is understood and how that might relate to the different kinds of solutions that different kinds of actors put forward as a solution to the problem of global hunger? Yes, of course. So you have the difference between institutions and some institutions, the debate happens within. Um, so places like the WTO, um, the World Bank to a significant degree, would understand, um, and many corporations would understand the issue of hunger in terms of scarcity. And they framed it in terms, with climate change, they framed it sharply as we have an incredibly growing number of people and we need to grow and produce more food to meet that demand. Mm -hmm. Now, the other perspective says, if you take just as a raw number, the number of people on the planet and the amount of food we have by any definition of need, nutritional, cultural, whatever, and right to food terms, adequate food, by any definition, we have more than enough food that, to go around. Um, it's, and it's more a matter of distribution. And I would, I would put it in more ter in terms of, uh, it's a matter of figuring out who has more food than they know what to do with and who needs food. And how can we share that food in a particular way so that no one goes hungry? So there's that tension sort of, and in and, and the FAO, for example, the FAO is an example of an institution that it's huge. There's a, that tension, it's a tension within the FAO. You see both of those discourses at play to some degree and at different times, one dominating over the other. And then people like La Via Campesina and the food sovereignty movement more broadly understand that there's more than enough food going around, but they experience, the food producers who are the most vulnerable, experience a very tragic irony that some of the people, some of the most hungry people on our planet are those that make our food. Whether it's in hospitals, whether it's laborers, whether it's peasants, they're the ones that are the most exposed to risk and that are the most exposed to precarious situations, even though they're feeding others while they are hungry. But then that creates a really different um, take on the distribution question because when you first started talking and you said some people think that the problem is not scarcity but distribution, immediately what sprang to mind was food aid and shipping food from the north to the south, which tends to be a very dominant trope. But when you started talking about 
people who are producing food going hungry. That made me think that when you talk about distribution, you're really talking about not removing food from the people who make it in a sense. So it's, Um, so the question of distribution is really interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's, and what, and then to further complicate it is not everywhere. So there's this idea of really focusing on your immediate situation and your locality and your community. So the, this, the idea of feeding oneself, the idea of the having, we should all have the power to feed ourselves. You can treat it in a very individualistic term or the sense of self becomes communal. And then it, and this immediately takes us to the sovereignty question, which is, well, who, who is the self? Who has the, who's that power? When we're saying I, I should, we should have, or I should have the power to feed myself. That's a communal question. Then who is the community and what power does that community have internally amongst each other? And then in relation to other communities, some places. So I'm originally from a very small country, Lebanon. Historically, we're agricultural. We have fresh water, which is a big deal in the region. But we rely on imports, for better or for worse, to eat. Other island nations rely on imports to eat. So yes, they can grow. Yes, they can be self-sustaining. Maybe they were at some point. But they've been relying on trade and importation of food for so long, it's, it's almost glib to say, well, just grow your own food. Just hunt your own food. Um, and f- maybe their island is ecologically devastated o- between years of imperialism and sort of post-colonial development programs. Now there's nothing left, but you couldn't grow anything if you wanted to. Lebanon, for example, we have uh, toxic waste dumped and pur- purchased illegally for the past 20 years. We're running out of water um, and there's a financial collapse. So you tell people, oh, just grow your own food. Mm-hmm. You, look at the, you might as well tell them, go starve to death. But are the barriers to growing your own food, obviously there are ecological barriers and technological barriers, but are there also legal barriers that are created by, for example, the global trading rules that stop you from making your own food? One of the documentaries that we show students often is a documentary called Life and Debt, which tracks um, International Monetary Fund conditionality and WTO accession in the context of Jamaica. And uh, it tells a story about the decimation of local dairy industries and local banana plantations, which happened because of the way that global trading rules and conditionality impact Jamaica. So it would be interesting for students to hear a little bit about how the law affects the capacity to be self-sufficient. So in debates about the tension between should we focus more on local food or, uh, or uh, trade, import and export, imported food, those that really want to uh, take a pro-trade side, they make the argument that, well, look, even if you want to buy locally, there's a trend. There's a trend of more and more people are relying on imported food for their everyday needs. And they treat that as a given, as a fact, Mm -hmm. and therefore one should ride that trend. One should not push against existing momentum and and that that evidences that trade is a good thing. That's how that argument goes. And, And I think sort of building on your question, that trend is because of a lot of choices that people made 
And because of trade law the way it is, trade law makes it very difficult for a developing country to change the, their agricultural system. And, and it, what it, uh, how do I do this quickly? So what it does is it makes it very hard for a government to subsidize local production for mm -hmm. the purpose of local consumption. For historical reasons, most developing economies are reliant on exporting primary commodities and usually a small number. And it's hard to change that for over, if we take just independence post, you know, for the last 60 years, no one's figured it out with some exceptions. And these are the same trends from imperial times. Combined with the existing trade system legitimizes places like the EU, Canada, and the United States subsidizing, giving cash transfers and grant big bags of money to their local farmers. Mm. Which then means that even if I wanted to, ex I'm a developing country, even if I want to export to Europe or export to the United States, I can't because they are rich enough to subsidize their farmers so the local prices are very low. And then those cheap goods that are produced locally in the US and the EU are exported out and dumped, as they say, in those markets. So the existing rules make it difficult. So why, so why are rich yeah. countries allowed to give subsidies to their farmers and poor countries are not? It's, well, it's funny how you have to be a clever lawyer to, to, to make that happen, as is as implied in your question. They don't say it all outright. They tell poor countries, this is a classic move in law. You're more than welcome to subsidize exactly the same as the EU and the US does. We're all equal before the law. And you have the same ability in the law to do exactly what they do. The reason that you can't do it is you don't have money. So when you become rich, like, like those countries, the law allows you to do it. The developing country's response is, okay, well, why don't you give us a tool we can use? We can't use cash transfers because we don't have cash. Why don't you let us, for example, be able to purchase uh, stocks of, of food from our local farmers at a premium, not necessarily the market price, but it's something that actually benefits the farmer. We give the farmer a premium but then we sell it to, uh, or we give it to people who need it, who are hungry at a discount. That way we subsidize our farmers and subsidize our consumers and then we bear it through whatever. So you're not allowed to do that under the WTO rules. So that's just a very a small but specific example of if how developing countries, if they, when they try to be creative, the rules really restrict them in a particular way. And this deal has been made since 1980, I want to say 82 or 83, no, 86. 1986, actually, before the WTO is when the US and the EU, their system was legitimized and given a legal uh, a, a stamp of approval by what was then the GATT, which is now the WTO. Michael, there's also the, the issue about in international trade negotiation, what counts as the goods that should be protected? Like what are the goods that are counted as being valuable and therefore uh, needed. So one thing that we have learned over the recent decades of bilateral investment treaties and, and bilateral trade negotiations is uh, that uh, developing countries, even when they know that the farmers are going to bear the cost of opening up their borders, they have done so because they are very hungry to attract investment, to set up, to help uh, the national industry to be uh, uh, 
to grow with the promise of employment. And, and the point here is that employment, urban employment, it is seen as being more valuable, um, more prone to lead these countries towards higher income to become finally developed at some point. Well, agricultural work is seen as not very important, so we can give up our potato industry, we can give up our onion industry in favor of those other jobs. So there's, there's also about a perception there that is very much, um, very entrenched and, 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 and very important, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. And, and to go, so on the institutional question, it's, I mean, this is a, a common trope we, we see in international law that in, if you take the issue of food and you run it through human rights, it's a right to food issue. If you run it through international humanitarian law, it's a, it's a starvation and criminal issue. In trade, it's not an issue. In trade, the idea is food should be treated like any other good. It's a commodity issue. It's a, let's call it commercial. And the FAO, it's a development issue. That's, and so the story you, tell, you told, Luis, would be the development version of the story, which is you know, coming out of the FAO. And just sometimes the WTO. And the part of what I'm trying to do through my mandate is push the question, where should we be having this conversation? Should we be talking about food at the WTO or should it be at the FAO or should it be at UNCTAD or UNDP or FAO or whatever? And it's not just an intellectual question. It's a political question. Who, which groups have power in that institution versus the other institution? The FAO up until now has been an open space for right to food. It has to constitutionally speaking in its own uh, terms, but also to food sovereignty and to uh, different social movements. With this new director general, it's too early to tell, I'm not quite sure. The WTO has been hostile to that up until now. The, the WTO is at an existential moment and it might be at more open than it's ever been right now. So I'm not, so it truly is an open question. My question to the WTO member states are going, is going to be, your only choice now is to either fundamentally transform the WTO or move the conversation somewhere else, which we've done as a world community, if, we, if I may say that, in the past. And institutions come and go. We shouldn't be sad if we move it out of the WTO. It ran its course and we move it. We could reimagine commodity agreements. We can do something like the ILO with a tripartite mm -hmm. system with indigenous groups and peasant groups. Declaration of, of, of peasants now allows us to say, well, peasants should have a seat at the negotiating table. So it, in terms of institutional design, I think it's an opportunity to push things. But to go back to the, on the discursive side of things on the idea of development and growth. And one frustration that food producers have had in the, in the last several decades of development is the disinvestment from agriculture as the rural, as you point out, but the rural was seen as we know, no one wants to be a farmer. No one wants to be a peasant. Let's, let's, you know, I'm working hard. This is my family. I'm working hard so my, my children don't have to work in the fields or be out in the ocean risking their life or having to follow the herds or whatever. And I want them to go to school and become an engineer or a doctor or whatever. So when my father saw my garden that I have here in Oregon, he left. He said, I, we've been working so you stopped being a peasant and now you're putting irrigation <laughs> in the ground. Right? Um, and so there's cultural, there's cultural uh, uh, assumptions that being a peasant or being of the land is not a good thing. And this distinction between traditional and modern gets created. And I think that misses the point that, and, and, and I, so I, again, I like framing it as the question of food in the everyday is, okay, I'm eating now, I have to do this. 
I enjoy doing this huh? and it's communal. Um, and it's part, it, so yes, it's commercial. I have to have an income to buy food, but also, so it becomes more complex and becomes a variety. It becomes, sometimes I buy my food. Sometimes I go over next door and I share my food. Sometimes I steal it. Sometimes I take it. And I just don't ask too many questions. Sometimes, right? So it opens up the, uh, the economy of food is not just buyers and sellers meeting each other in the market. That's one aspect. It could be formal markets or informal markets. So, 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 so I, uh, you have been telling us and, and giving us a very, uh, your understanding of the right to food, which is, which is definitely uh, the outcome of years, if not decades of thinking hard about how the world works and how food is important to the, to, to, to the functioning of the world. Um, and 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 so you you belong to a generation that is not going to take a kind of a simplified version of of food a la developmentalist which farmers producing for the 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 the, the, the economy uh, and then uh, just waiting for the tide of modernity to get to them and then uh, uh, wash them away. But we're still talking about the right to food. So is it, is it then the right to food the problem? So the, the right to food is still kind of dissects food from all the other relations. So it shouldn't be instead talking about the right to creating communities that are more resilient, the right to resilience. Wouldn't that be much better? That's a yeah. That's a that's the question I wonder, and and I also wonder in terms of it's. I find myself in a position is of of using rights discourse after all this time, and I think I come to it very tactically at first. So I came. I'm. I uh, the reason I applied for this is it was the right to food, not because it was a human right thing, it was the food part specifically. Right to food comes out of a very particular struggle. And it is a powerful human right because of social movements, because of La Via Campesina, because of the food sovereignty movement, because of institutional actors within the FAO making certain choices and decisions, and because of academics sort of rallying around this idea and concept and trying to redefine it and revitalize it. So there's both a tactical use that comes from an ambivalence sort of, it could have been anything and it could be anything. It could be water, it could be, I had a wonderful conversation with the rapporteur on the right to environment uh, the other day we met for the first time. And I asked him the same question, why, so why the human right aspect? Different rapporteurs come to it differently. So I come from a tradition that understands the limits, the conceptual limits of the right to food. But conceptual limits, but we still live in the world, I still have to eat. So I can talk about the limits and all of that all I want, but if I'm hungry, I still have to make a choice of which tool do I have in the mm. kitchen to make the, 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 the meal. Can right? I be so, can, can I be a yeah. devil's advocate here? Please. So just to build on Louise's question, what if I said to you, like if you go to the supermarket and you look at what poor people have in their trolley in the rich world versus what rich people have in their trolley. And you look at who tends to be overweight and who doesn't in rich countries, at least you can see immediately that the idea of nutrition and quality is also being distributed differently. So what if I said to you, well, look, the right to food can be fulfilled by giving people enough money to buy whatever food is available and should be 
made accessible by huge industrial food production, which makes food really cheap, and that that's how we should fulfil the right to food, versus a right to food which says, I want to grow my food. I want my children to have good quality organic food. And that's how I want my right to food to effectively be a right to decide about my food, not a right to have food coupons to buy industrially produced white bread, for example. So how do you hold on to the contestation? Or first of all, is there contestation around the meaning of the right? And how do you hold on to it so that people ultimately can hold on to a capacity to make decisions about food? Yeah, and I would add, that's a wonderful question. And, and I would add another complicating, what if, the, what if it's, it's not just that people might be forced to buy industrial food, they might choose. That actually also is a choice that they say, I want cheap food. I'm a very busy person. Life is really tough. The last thing I want to be doing is growing and worrying about all that bougie, whatever stuff. Just give me a cheap, easy, this is what, and this is what I grew up on. So I'm very reluctant. I've had this debate with, with colleagues and comrades over. I'm very reluctant to tell people you should eat X and Y and Z. Mm. And so whenever I'm, I'm occasionally pressed in terms of well, what after when I'm teaching, especially what should I eat? Oh my goodness. Should it be fair trade or should it be shade grown? I tell them, look, don't tell, I don't want to hear stories like unionized elves who willingly gave their, you know, the banana gave itself to me. Right. Like, so I'm not, that's not the style I come to. If we say, so I come from my frustration with the existing system is the existing trade regime and the existing food system forces us down one path of industrial agri agriculture. No. And if you try and do something differently, communally speaking, your community tries to do something, there are so many laws and institutions in place that stop you. Um, and from local government law to international law to national law to cultural tropes to assumptions to the fact that I just called one version bougie and the other not, that's just ways of creating these distinctions is that that singularity to push against that singularity and explode it oops to explode it out into a multi this is why in the, your, your first question on worlds to have a multitude of worlds hmm, yet somehow interact knowing that your choice will affect my and that's where i'm so pleased that the that the idea of the right to food has been grounded in agroecology has been grounded in the notion, this is what's going to keep me, keep me focused, the notion of biodiversity. A food regime, however we construct whatever we end up with, and it's all its multitude of worlds, I think the political commitment from, for the right to food to be effective by any definition needs to focus on biodiversity, from our gut to the forests. Mm. Right? That, and then that opens up, that then becomes an issue of climate change, of mm. being, of, of being in the world. And again, uh, biodiversity, if we expand it outside of the material world, so also the spiritual world, how we eat is how we connect with our past and with our future. So it just opens it up in this, this long, complicated web of relationships. Then we can start talking properly. Then we can negotiate and do international law and find the compromises we need and share water and air and all that stuff. If we can't, if we can, if we focus on biodiversity.
So one of the, when we told our students that we had managed to secure a little bit of your time to interview you, we asked them if there were things that they wanted us to ask you. And one uh, student called Simon asked if um, you could say something about eating meat. Mm. So I think that his question was really about, um, you know, should there be, should there be restrictions on meat production or how would it work? So it's funny because when I was a child, I remember that um, my family in India tended to be divided between those who thought they, or those who understood themselves as more modern and those who understood themselves as more traditional. And it was the modern, the moderns who ate meat and the traditionals who didn't. And so I'm just wondering with the, some of the things you've been saying about whether there is a, there is a tendency to equate meat with modernization or, and if that has changed recently um, and what you might have to say to our student. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's still unclear to me why that the more uh, a country's economy grows, um, that the meat and milk consumption actually, liquid milk. So there's something there, there's something about, and I'm still doing a history of milk and milk consumption to understand that side of things. But just let's treat that, 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 that's, that is what's going on. Um, I think there's something about the logic of assuming that the economy is an infinite, a perpetual machine of growth and the way we consume meat and, and the, the ecological damage that's created by that. If there's something about meat uh, uh, exemplifying wealth and success and, and comfort and status, all that's in play that ties into if your end goal then is wealth and economic growth, then you need to secure that in a lot of different ways. And eating meat is one of those ways, even though it's brutal, uh, done the way it is. Mm. Now, my reluctance to say then let us push against meat consumption is not all meat is the same and we all don't eat meat the same way and the role of meat in different communities lives isn't the same so from what i know for example from seal hunting in the arctic when you live in the arctic there's only so much you can do there's only so many sources of food so uh, for example uh, a six pack of like coca-cola i think can hit 45 canadian dollars sometimes uh, traditionally and in modern times, however we want to make that distinction, seal meat. Seal meat is the source of everything in, uh, in Inuit communities. The sense of identity, the sense of nutrition, the sense of a source of clothes. What's happened then is European uh, and North American animal uh, rights activists have said, you are barbaric. You hunt and kill and you do it in a barbaric way. You are bad people more or less. And so you see that, you see where they're coming, the, the rights activists are coming from welfare mm. concerns and environmental concerns, pushing up against that. And so, you know, I, I don't, so we can argue, I think many of us can argue against uh, uh, um, CAFOs, it stands for concentrated agricultural feed or, or industrial ag, right? Big lots of cows that are miserable, that mm. are just treated like basically just abstract meat producing miserable things versus a different under different relationship with the animal where in some indigenous communities the animal they hunt is their kin or cuisine how you cook meat for example in Lebanese cooking meat is there but it's often background 
it's rarely the slap, you know, the leg of lamb is once a year. It's the big, like you're praising your creator. You have this big piece of, okay. Otherwise it's in the background. And we, the way we eat meat, for example, is it's not every day. Um, it's, it's, it's uh, now that changes them. So cooking techniques start to matter. The cultural role of meat uh, starts to matter. So one has to be understanding and generous in, of, of, of how different communities, uh, the role meat plays in different communities. I think this is the this is the moment where we should um, start kind of closing. But before we close, I think we need to talk about COVID nineteen. Uh, so uh, the 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 entire world is paralyzed. There's uh, there's very serious worries about the pandemic uh, lasting for a very long time, and that having an effect on on food and the ability of communities to. Uh, afford the food that they need, in particular in um, indigenous communities, Afro-Latino communities, and um, peasant communities. Um, so I wanted to ask and you... And urban poor. And, and urban poor. And I wanted to ask you, from your position as someone that has thought so hard about food for many years, what would you learn from the current pandemic in order to be better prepared next time. And I'm saying this because I'm, um, I'd like, I think like many of us, I'm trying to learn as much as possible, but the lessons of, uh, of that I'm extracting from the present moment, I still know very clear. So I, I wanted you to help me on the, on the question of food. Yeah. <sighs> what to learn. I'm still learning too. Huh? Um, the, I mean, the first thing is, what we've seen, what we're, I get frustrated when people keep using the word unprecedented when they talk about the pandemic. And we haven't used that word here, thankfully. So yes, COVID-19 is unique. But what we're, what I'm seeing at the, this end, at least, is the current, uh, this virus is exacerbating and accelerating existing inequalities. If you're poor, you're poor. If you're hungry, you are hungrier. If you're middle class, you're slipping into poverty. And if you're rich, you have enough resources to buffer you against what's going on. What that tells me is that the existing system, it's not that it, of course, we can say it's not resilient. That part is clear. So, so the counter argument, people would say, yes, it's not resilient. This is exceptional. This is an exceptional circumstance. We cannot use the existing problems to judge the system. The system is not broken. The virus is the problem. And my push against that is, no, this, what we see is, let's look at all the vulnerabilities. We, could, we can predict why things are not working. And we predicted that these were the weak spots in, there's decades of research that identified these problems in advance. And those are the first to go. We all see it now. So again, I don't like the phrase reveal, but it's only revealing to those that were either willfully blind or not paying attention. Who are the first and who are the most vulnerable? The agricultural workers, women stuck in the house, um, uh, 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 fisher folk, um, grocery workers, the people who rely on food banks. You, those, immediately, those were people who are already vulnerable, already precarious. Yeah. And, and, and the, those with power are relying on them, are calling them essential workers, are cutting into their pay, and making their life harder, but telling them, but if you don't feed me, 
I can't do without you, but I'm going to step on your head while you're working in the field or in the grocery store or whatever. So there's that aspect. There's the part that I haven't learned anything new. Maybe it's confirmation bias, but I'm even angrier and more energized than ever before and, and, and happy that I have comrades around me that have been doing good work. There's that part. Uh, I'm weirdly uh, confident that we, will, we have some good work to, ahead of us. But what I am also learning is where leadership and, and where new ideas are going to come from is not going to be from where we expect. Schools, for example. Schools, if no one knew this before, everyone knows this now. Schools are not necessarily, and I've always been a little like homework is not really that important sort of person, but schools are not necessarily places of education. God knows I learned more from not going to school. They're places of feeding our children and taking care of our children. Schools are institutions of care and food. You, and I'm watching school districts and superintendents and teachers being incredibly uh, uh, um, uh, brave, but creative, political, and committed to their communities. That's where we're going to get our new ideas from those sorts of moments, from mutual aid groups that are people are taking care of each other, from people also all of a sudden people realizing not they cannot take their where they get their food for granted. So we're seeing a commitment to local food that's uh, people are now scrambling to, to to their local farms and local whatever scrambling. And I'm not going to get into the local versus inner global bit, and you know, we can have that for another time or part two or over a drink when it's all over, right? But people, what they are appreciating, local or not, they're appreciating that understanding where your food comes from is important, but mo even more, having a relationship of trust with those that feed, feed us is very important. Whether they're from another country or not, if we depend, we all depend on each other and therefore I have to trust you and you have to trust me. So our economy of food, if it's based on trust and solidarity, that might get us where we need to go because that's what's getting us through the pandemic right now. So one thing I'm thinking about is in my, my right to food sort of studying is studying examples of success, of friendship, of solidarity, of what worked on whatever scale, by whatever definition of, of, of government. That's really inspiring, Michael. I mean, in a, in a sense, if you'll pardon the pun, um, the answers to our further questions have emerged organically. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think uh, there were a couple of questions from Shelley and Rishab, which really are touched on by what you've just been saying. And also, I think Louise and I were planning to ask you just to say one or two things about what you hope to achieve during your tenure as um, special rapporteur. Some of what you've just said is really giving me great faith and hope that you'll do great things while you're there. But if you had to distill it down to one or two things that you hope to achieve, um, could you? I could, you know, so you're catching me on an ambitious day. Um... I had plans coming in and the pandemic is forcing me to change my agenda very quickly on a daily basis. But where I am today, what's today? For me, it's a Saturday and it's, you know, it's a nice day. So um, I want to move the, I want to move the, the institutional space for, for trade. I want the trade in food and agriculture uh, not necessarily to be uh, conducted by the same people. Uh, maybe outside of the WTO or in a fundamentally different place for the WTO, but the WTO can no longer be the anchor for the discussion about trade and agriculture. So that's 
and I have three and hopefully six years to do this. I didn't mention, so the mandate's three years. Mm. We usually get it renewed for another three years. And, and rapporteurs, part of what I'm learning is we, we have the, almost the permission to be ambitious. Um, and it's a weird place for me to be like that. Um, so I want to I want to move food out of the WTO and into a broader institutional space. And then the second thing is I want, and this is where I'm pushing myself outside of out of sort of institutional spaces. I want people to understand their relationship with the biosphere um, differently. I want us to think about, and not just ecology and environment, just the not to make it a big deal. So part of what I'm trying to, is how do we tell different stories? And I'm, and, and, you know, this is actually inspired by you, Sandhya, is I'm thinking about how do I connect with old, old friends of mine who are all uh, comic book artists? So what can I, I'm going to be hearing stories from all over the world. I'm going to be seeing people doing things so differently. How do I share that? Not in a UN report or in a lecture or whatever, but in a proper story with real characters, with human drama and a conflict that's entertaining and exciting and exhilarating, filled with ambiguity, that leaves you thinking about your relationship with the biosphere and the past and the future in a fundamentally different way. Mm, that's really exciting. Um, where do we sign up? <laughs> <laughs> where do we join the network of storytelling about how things how things are different actually than the way they, they're imagined in some quarters. Um, Louise, do you have a last question or should we wrap at that point? No, I just want to say thank you, Michael. That's a, that was very, uh, um, it was fascinating. I had the opportunity to uh, um, be in conversation with Michael uh, recently as part of the International Economic Law Collective. And I learned a huge amount in that conversation. And today I learned even more. Um, Good luck in um, the next three years, and if not six years, um, you know you you will have us and all many other friends to support your work. Yeah, no, thank you to the both of you. This is truly, I think, uh, a product of all of us. I mean, we've been friends a long time, and we've had we have this similar friends, and I've learned we've all learned from each other, and we've helped each other. I wouldn't have had the audacity to apply if I didn't know I had people like you watching my back. And also keeping me straight and calling me on my uh, bullshit when it arises. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I'm sure we'll try to bother you with the request for further interviews as time goes on. You probably won't have as much time ever again as you do right now. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, thank you so much, Michael. That was marvellous. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.